But first, an update on the Illinois assault weapons ban. A federal judge has denied a motion attempting to block the statewide ban from taking effect. The judge ruled last week that the ban is, quote, constitutionally sound. It's the latest development in legal battles that have ensued since the Protect Illinois Communities Act was signed into law last month. Now, what does this mean for the future of the legislation and how does it fit into the national debate on assault weapons? Here to give us context is Andrew Willinger, executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. Great to have you, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me on. Also with us is John Seidel, federal courts reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Good to have you back, John. Good to be here. I'll start with you, John. Back in January, the governor signed the Protect Illinois Communities Act banning the sale of assault weapons as well as high-capacity magazines. And since then, as we've seen, there have been multiple lawsuits. So can you just bring us up to speed on those? Sure. Um, that's correct. There, the, the lawsuit started both in state and federal court. We've seen a couple of temporary restraining orders issued in state court uh, affecting people who participated in those uh, pieces of litigation. Uh, but those rulings really focused in on mostly on procedural issues with the passage of the law. Um, most observers have been watching uh, what's going to happen in federal court. That's that's where they really think that um, the de the debate will the the most um, important debate will happen about whether or not Illinois' assault weapons ban comports with um, recent rulings out of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And this ruling from um, U.S. District Judge Virginia Kendall on Friday night uh, appears to be the first time that uh, a federal judge uh, applied, uh, you know, you know, looked at whether or not Illinois' new law, um, you know, squares with that that Bruin decision out of the, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and she found it did, as you said, she found that it is constitutionally sound. And she wrote that because assault weapons are particularly dangerous weapons, and high-capacity magazines are particularly dangerous weapon accessories, their regulation accords with history and tradition. Mm. Well, uh, th those cases were in circuit and county courts. This latest one, as we, we've just mentioned, deals with a, a federal case. Remind us, who brought this particular lawsuit forward? Yeah, this uh, this case was brought by um, Robert Beavis. He's a um, gun shop owner in Naperville. And the interesting thing about this case that I think one of the reasons it, it wound up coming down first is because this lawsuit actually began before the passage of Illinois' assault weapons ban. It, the, the complaint originally centered around uh, a, an assault weapons, uh, an ordinance in Naperville that banned the sale of assault weapons. Um, so Naperville was sued over that. And once Illinois passed its law, the lawsuit was amended um, to also um, address the state law. But a lot of the arguments about temporary restraining order, um, preliminary injunction, a lot of the briefing that had to happen uh, was already underway um, be before Illinois passed its law. And so I think that's why we see this one coming down now while mm -hmm. some of the other lawsuits um, are probably on track for rulings maybe even a month from now. Andrew, let's bring you in here. The The complaint that was brought in this federal case, it argues that the Illinois assault weapons ban didn't meet the requirements that were set out in the Supreme Court case that was New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. First, can you tell us what the decision was of that case and how it's maybe shaped debates on assault weapons? 
Sure. So Bruin was a decision issued by the Supreme Court last summer, and Bruin dealt with uh, handgun licensing. So it was a challenge to New York's uh, framework for granting uh, concealed carry handgun licenses. So it's it's a different issue, but what was very consequential about the decision in Bruin was that the Supreme Court set forward a new legal test um, that will now apply to all Second Amendment challenges going forward. Um, and that test, generally speaking, requires that um, the government show that a modern gun law have his, have support in the American historical tradition. Um, so if, if a law implicates conduct protected by the Second Amendment, then the government needs to put forward analogous regulations from history in order to justify its regulatory approach. I see. And, and I want to dig more into that historical precedent, Andrew. How is that supposed to factor into whether a, a gun control law is constitutional? Uh, right. So the Supreme Court doesn't give a ton of guidance in Bruin on how this uh, historical analogical inquiry is actually supposed to work. Mm -hmm. um, the justices say, uh, you know, in the majority, the justices say you need to look at the how and the why of a historical regulation, and those should be similar to the how and the why of a modern regulation. Now, of course, um, there are there has been a ton of technological change in firearms, and so it's going to be difficult in many instances especially with uh, things like assault weapons bans, to, to determine what is similar in history when you're not dealing with the same types of weapons, of course. And Andrew, as John mentioned earlier, uh, Judge Kendall here in Illinois, uh, she had some, some words here. Again, I'll read the quote. She said, because assault weapons are particularly dangerous weapons and high-capacity magazines are particularly dangerous weapon accessories, their regulation accords with history and tradition. Um, what do you think about her reasoning here? Right. So uh, the judge in this case uh, found that there was a, a historical tradition of banning, particularly banning or restricting the carry of particularly dangerous weapons. Um, she specifically focused on Bowie knives, um, other kinds of knives and daggers that were widely restricted at the state level in the 1800s. Um, I think that's that's uh, notable because um, that that reasoning uh, to history occurs at a pretty high level of generality, right? Judge Kendall says, you know, that the general principle here is that uh, states and local governments can regulate particularly dangerous weapons in their own estimation. Um, there's been a lot of confusion, and judges have really been all over the map post-Bruin on how closely you need to look at history and how close the historical laws need to be to the modern law. So I think this is an, uh, an illustration of taking a little bit of a more uh, flexible or general approach to the history. Mm -hmm. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're discussing a decision last week from a federal judge in Chicago that denied a motion attempting to halt the Illinois assault weapons ban with us to discuss what this means for the legislation moving forward and how it factors into the national gun control debate is Andrew Willinger, who's executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law, as well as John Seidel, federal courts reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. John, giving, given the varying decisions in the county courts and then this recent federal ruling, where does the assault weapons ban stand now? And what is the legal fight going to look like going forward? Sure. I, well, I, I mean, it's it, it remains uh, the law in the state of Illinois, um, subject to some exceptions based on those temporary restraining orders in 
in state court again that that apply to specific people. Um, but um, I, I think probably what we're watching next is the legal battle that's brewing in the in federal court in southern Illinois. There are at least four um, lawsuits that are are moving through the court there. Uh, I believe they've all been um, assigned to the same judge, and it looks like they're trying to coordinate a, a you know a, basically the briefing schedule um, for those cases, so that they're you know the the state and the the plaintiffs will will be you know coordinating their responses and everything. Um, we're probably going to get responses from the state at the end of this month, early uh, early March, and then um, there'll be another set of briefs in, in the middle of March. And, and that's, we're probably going to see rulings then, um, I'd say probably late March, uh, early April. That's probably when the next, uh, next big ruling is going to happen. But there are a couple of other lawsuits moving around in the Northern District of Illinois too. So um, we're just gonna be watching for these individual rulings. And um, I, I'm sure that appeals will follow and we'll, We'll have to watch as they these move up the ladder. You know, Andrew, the Protect Illinois Communities Act, it bans the sale of more than 200 firearms that are labeled as assault weapons. Also, those high-capacity magazines we talked about. Our governor has said that this is one of the strongest gun laws in the country. Help us understand how it compares to gun legislation in other states. Sure. So uh, the Illinois law um, makes Illinois, I believe, the 10th state to have uh, an assault weapons ban in place. Now, those laws uh, define the prohibited weapons uh, differently, so there may, there may be some variation among them, but that kind of gives you an idea of what the, what the current landscape is there. Uh, I think it's about 15 states um, that have large capacity magazine restrictions. Um, and so that, you know, it, it certainly, uh, the Illinois law certainly does um, put Illinois in that, in that group of states that is uh, regulating uh, these issues most heavily. Uh, do you think that this case will reach the Supreme Court? Uh, so it's it's always very difficult to to speculate on that and to and to read the tea leaves of sort of what what cases the court may take up. Uh, what I will say there is that I I think um, we're very likely to see uh, the Supreme Court in the coming years uh, take one or more Second Amendment cases. Um, that's a departure from past practice, and that there was a, a lengthy period of time between 2010 and uh, just last year where the court really didn't take up any major Second amendment cases. So I think uh, some of the uh, conflicting outcomes that we're seeing at the lower levels of the federal court system on other gun uh, laws, including you know, sensitive places, bans, and prohibited person, persons uh, restrictions, um, I, I think that means that the court is, is going to have to step in and give some guidance on those issues. And it may also uh, consider taking an assault weapons case as well. Yeah. Any thoughts there, John? The likelihood that this will reach the Supreme Court? And, and I mean, what shot it would have in comparison to other state gun control laws? Yeah, I, I'm not sure if, you know, like Andrew said, if, if this will be the one, I, I kind of suspect um, that it won't be, but who knows? I mean, this is, this is, um, this could be the one that heads to the seventh circuit first and starts moving its its way up. I, I, I do wonder, you know, there, there were arguments that were made by the plaintiffs here that, uh, you know, the judge really focused on whether or not assault weapons are dangerous the plaintiffs here really argued that the, the new the new Bruin test ha, that weapons have to be considered both dangerous and unusual, and because of the uh, common possession of these weapons, um, they therefore cannot be banned. I'm going to be watching to see 
I, I didn't really see the judge address the unusual question here, and I'll be watching to see if that becomes an issue on, on appeal. Yeah. And Andrew, again, asking you to look into that crystal ball. How do you see the legal debate about weapon bans evolving, just moving forward? Sure. So I think uh, to, to pick up on what, what John said, you know, I, I think the one of the big questions here is going to be um, how the common use standard that the Supreme Court has articulated um, and, and seemed to reaffirm in that Bruin decision, how that plays into the historical analysis. Um, specifically, you know, is it, is it possible for a, a, a type of, or a category of weapons to be in common use, but to still uh, be subject to regulations based on the historical tradition? Um, I don't think that's really clear, and I think that'll be uh, definitely something to watch and um, keep an eye on as these cases work their way up. And I mean, for those you know listening now who who are still kind of wondering what this means for me, sort of on an individual level, what do you think? Do these laws right now have any bearing on our day to day lives at this point, Andrew? Uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think um, I, I think they they certainly. Do and I think it, it's certainly something that has uh, it, it, these laws have real-world impact. Um, you know, the Illinois law currently remains in effect, and that that uh, that impacts um, people on the ground. Um, but I, I think there is, you know, I'll say there's there there does seem to be, especially in Illinois and, and in other states as well, some um, some confusion when you have um, different different court rulings at, at different, uh, you know, some at the state level, some right. at the federal level. Sometimes going different ways, it can be very difficult to actually know at any given point, you know, is the law in effect, what portions are in effect. Um, so I think that that is a real issue. Thanks for clearing that up. That was Andrew Willinger, executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law, and John Seidel, federal courts reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Thank you both.